0: We came up with uh, the Bible, how it got into our hands, and especially how it got into our hands in our language. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm warm again today. Oh, all right, sometimes we run that heat. I don't know what it is up here. It gets hot, very hot. So um, anyway, uh, we talked a little bit last week about some of this. The Bible is given by inspiration of God. and Uh, We believe the Bible to be true. We believe it to be not just containing the Word of God, the words of God, or the thoughts of God, but we believe it to be the actual words of God that were breathed, that were given word by word to the uh, authors, those that were used as human instruments to pen them. Somewhere around 40-some authors uh, were used over a period of about 1,600 years uh, and the Bible is in full agreement with itself. That in of itself is supernatural. And to get that many people to all write uh, on a common theme and not have contradictions uh, means that there had to be a single source of inspiration, that there was only one that was giving to them the words to write. And so we believe the Bible to be inspired by God. We, we accept that by faith, and uh, we believe it uh, mainly because the Bible says that it is. That's really the only reason that we need. But it is interesting that there are other outside uh, evidences that the Bible is uh, certainly all of God's Word to us, that it's been revealed to us, that it is inerrant. And we talked a little bit last week about how oftentimes um, the world has to catch up with the Bible. I've heard a lot of men that were well-learned, and, and I mean men with a ton of education, um, that uh, got up and, and explained why the Bible couldn't be true in this area or that area. And they would often point to things that were not uh, known in modern day. And then within the course of their lifetime, something happened, and all of a sudden a discovery is made. And if come to find out, the Bible was true there too. And uh, it's, again, the, the, the fact that oftentimes uh, we have to catch up with Scripture, not the, the Bible having to catch up with us. Uh, the Bible is not a history book, although it contains history. Uh, It's not a science book, although it contains science and it deals with science. It's not a mathematics textbook, although it has a lot of uh, mathematical things in there. It is the Word of God, and we hold to it as such. It's interesting. We talked about the divisions of Scripture last week, um, how that we have uh, the the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and then we have the uh, historical books, The historical books are from um, uh, Numbers, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy, Numbers, let's see, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I said Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, okay, there we go, from Joshua, I couldn't get the right book there, all the way from Joshua to uh, just before Job, Job begins the poetic books, and then you have the poetic books, which were Job, Psalms, Proverbs, um, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, so five books for the poetic books, and then you have the, minor, uh, the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the rest of those books following that would be considered the minor prophets. Now, we divide them in five areas like that. The, the Jews, the Hebrews, uh, were historically have looked at the Old Testament as three divisions. Uh, one of them was the law. The other one were the prophets. And then they had a, a section that they referred to as the Psalms or the poetic books And so they look at them in three parts. In fact, oftentimes you'll hear Jesus in His ministry, when He's dealing with the Jews, refer to the Law and the Prophets. Uh, I think it's in Mark 24, so you'll see a a reference to the fact of the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms. Uh, And so, uh, again, the Hebrews looked at it a little differently than we do. Uh, We we divide it into five groups. It's still the same same books. And uh, so we have 66 of these books. And uh, 39 of them in the Old Testament, 27 of them in the New Testament. And the, the division that is there, uh, the word testament is the same word that is used in the book of Hebrews in reference to the new covenant that was made. And uh, you start reading Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, you'll see that uh, covenant and testament were used interchangeably there uh, in the book of, of Hebrews. And um, so we have the old If you will, covenant or the pre-Calvary books, and then we have the new covenant or the the things that were done at Calvary and beyond. Now the Gospels still have a little bit of pre-Calvary because it deals with the life of Christ and it has not yet taken place. But by the time we get to the Book of Acts and following that, we are certainly in. Uh, the, new, uh, the New Testament, the New Covenant of things. Um, and so that's why our Bible is divided into two parts. If you ever wondered why do we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, that is why. One of them deals with the imperfect uh, covenant that God had made uh, with the nation of Israel. The uh, New Testament deals with the New Covenant, which was perfect and was made for every man. It was allowed uh, everyone to be grafted in, and so we thank the Lord for that. Uh, let's take a look. I, I did a handout this week and gave to you. Let's take a real quick look at the canonicity of Scripture. That's a big word. It just simply means how did we get these particular books into our Bible? Uh, obviously, there were other uh, spiritual people that wrote a lot of things in the Old Testament, uh, some of them in the New Testament even, and yet not all of them made it in there, not all of the writings of the Apostles made it in there. For instance, the Apostle Paul, I believe, wrote at least three letters to the church at Thessalonica. We only have two of those. And so there are certain things that uh, were used. So let's take a look here at canonicity of Scripture. This is a real quick, again, very... Uh, <laughs> this is something that literally I spent an entire semester in college on, this subject, and wrote, I think, four or five term papers on this particular subject. Uh, it, to do this in one page front side, you're, I'm telling you, we're giving you the bare bones, okay? But giving you the idea of how we came across this. Um, there, uh, The canon, when we talk about the canon of Scripture, uh, we're not talking about the big gun that fires. We're talking about the books that are accepted, generally accepted, as the books that were to be included in our, our Bible and referred to as Scripture. So let's take a quick look here. There were five uh, criteria when it came to the New Testament books, and these primarily deal with the New Testament books, although there was some consideration given to even some of the Old Testament books, but very only by a few exceptions. The first one was authorship. In order for a, a book to be included in our Scriptures, it had to be authored by an apostle or a prophet or a holy man of God. Uh, so it had to be one of these, one of these types of folks. Um, by the way, uh, there are people today that call themselves apostles and prophets. Uh, we don't have any more apostles and prophets. And one of the uh, requirements to be an apostle was you had to see Christ physically with your own eyes in His risen form. Uh, And we don't have anybody here that has seen Christ in His risen form in this day and age. Uh, As far as prophets are concerned, they would always give new revelation that was not yet known that God intended for man to understand or to know about. And we have a completed revelation. The Bible tells us that very, very clearly. Uh, Paul starts dealing with it as he deals with the church at Galatians about, uh, that we are an angel from heaven. Preach any other gospel than that which is preached. Let him be accursed. And uh, then, of course, John, the last of the apostles living uh, in the last book that was written chronologically, uh, puts in there, don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. It's finished. It's complete. It's done. Uh, We're we're no more revelation. God has given us everything that He intends to give us in this book. And so, we don't have apostles, we don't have prophets anymore. And a a person that will get up and say, well, I've got something that God gave me, and we don't find it in Scripture, they might have eaten a good pizza the night before, but God did not give that to them. Uh, He's never going to give them extra biblical uh, revelation. Now, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit does not Uh, guide and direct and impress things upon our hearts, but He's not going to give you a word of knowledge that is something new that is not found in Scripture. It's just not going to happen. Uh, And uh, so authorship was a big thing. Local church acceptance, and not just any local church, but notice this, it should have been accepted by the local churches of the first century Christians. These were those that, for the most part, uh, were eyewitness to the accounts that took place in the New Testament. They could verify but yes, they were there when Christ did this or they were in the next city over and they knew people that could verify it by eyewitness accounts. And so the the acceptance of that group of people was very, very highly considered when it came to issues of Scripture. Recognition by the church fathers. And uh, the church fathers we would refer to as, again, those that were the religious leaders in the Christian movement, not not in the, uh, the synagogues and the Old Testament practices, but in the New Testament churches uh, these would be the, the religious leaders, maybe the pastors or the elders, again, in that first century time period. Uh, so, you know, how did they refer to them uh, when they wrote in Scripture about the letter that Paul wrote? This is an interesting thing. Up until about a little after 300 A.D., 300 years after Christ, you could have still walked into the church at Smyrna and gone up to the pulpit and found the actual manuscripts that Peter penned that he wrote. You could have actually seen them. Uh, You could have seen the the letter that John wrote to them. And they actually had the physical, I mean, his actual handwriting on them. And shortly after that, those uh, documents began to disappear. But they have record, historical record of them being on those pulpits in that church up until that period of time. So again, these early church fathers knew these things firsthand. They knew them well. So it was very important to have uh, their... their, uh, Approval of it or their, their acceptance of it as Scripture. Number four, it had to have sound doctrine. There couldn't be some, some foreign doctrine, some weird thing that would, did not agree with the rest of Scripture. So it should convey sound doctrine and must be consistent with the revelation of God. So anything that was written that would be contrary to the rest of Scripture uh, was something that was uh, rejected. And then personal edification. It should be dynamic in its nature towards the transformation of lives uh, and to contribute uh, as spiritual food and light for personal edification. Uh, So this was primarily the five rules that were followed for the New Testament canon of Scripture. Uh, The Old Testament uh, was already accepted by the time of Christ. Um, It was already recognized. And... uh, they uh, finally made it official, uh, the Third Council of Carthage, which would have been around 400 A.D. They finally said, yes, we're going to put it in writing. This is what uh, we believe uh, to be the full canon of Scripture. Um, again, dealing with the Old Testament, a lot of the same things were followed uh, in a lot of areas as far as uh, the acceptance of the law, who, who authored them. Uh, were, they, were they people like you know, the Pentateuch written by mostly Moses? Um, you've got uh, some of the other uh, great uh, men of God that would pen these things in the Old Testament, men of renown, uh, spiritual leaders in the Old Testament types of things. Uh, but one of the other things that was a key to Old Testament acceptance were the, the examples and the illumination of prophecy. So uh, I gave an illustration here of Daniel. So Daniel was uh, given a, um, an illustration, or he's given a, a prophecy by an angel uh, of, of 70 weeks. And he was he was given this a, a 483 years before they started coming true. And not only was he given the uh, prophecy, but he was also given the explanation of the prophecy. And uh, so again, when you're trying to figure out which books go in here, well, do they have some sort of prophecy that was 100% true and everything came out? And there was no explanation because man could not have done it. Only God could have done it. It could have only come by the word of God in Himself. So, again, these are things that were considered. The Old Testament, uh, of course, the law that was given, the historical books, those were given to the nation of Israel. They were written by Moses. They were penned by Moses. <coughs> a lot of them. A lot of the historical books penned by uh, the people that were, uh, the books are named after a lot of times. And uh, giving first hand accounts of this is what took place. And it's interesting that the historical books of our Bible are literally used as history for the nation of Israel. Um, they, don't, they don't always turn to a secular historian. When they want to know what their nation's history is, they come to Scripture. And they use those books as authentic, uh, accurate depictions of their nation's history. And uh, so it's very, very important that they kept those things uh, very, very pure, not, not changed. They were very meticulous with it. And so that was very, very important. So that's how we got the 66 books. And again, I, I did that in 10 minutes, and it is a months long study. It gives us an idea of how some of the rules that were followed, some of the guidelines that were used to come up with the books that were given here. You can do a much more thorough study on that if you'd like to. But roughly, that's that's the process that took place to give us our 66 books that are written in here. The Bible was written in at least four different languages that we know of. Um, there, A lot of the Old Testament was written in uh, Old Hebrew. Uh, much of it was. Some of it was written in Old Aramaic, uh, which again was a... Uh, world-known language. It's interesting that whenever God gave Scripture, uh, He gave it to us in the language that was dominant in that period of time, that most of all the world could at least read, speak, and understand. Uh, And He always would tend to use those languages uh, at the times of the writings. Uh, There's a very, very small amount of our Scripture that was written in the Old Testament, that was written in Chaldean, Uh, And then we know, of course, the New Testament, for the most part, a lot of it was written uh, in Koine Greek, which is the old style Greek. Uh, You say, what's the difference between that and and going to Greece today and talking to the people in Greek today? It'd be similar to if you were to take Shakespearean English and try to use it conversationally today. Uh, Could we understand the gist of it? Sure, but it's going to be foreign to us to some degree. And so Koine Greek was a lot like that compared to modern-day Greek. (coughs) Shortly after the time of Christ, uh, they took all of the Scriptures, the early church did, the first church did, and they uh, translated all of it into an old Latin, an old ancient Latin uh, text. And uh, there were two major um, uh, translations that were uh, used that were considered to be pure, and considered to be without error. One of them was the old Latin, not the Latin Vulgate. Don't get that mixed up. But one of them was the old Latin. Uh, the other one it was what was called the Syriac, and uh, these were uh, two uh, forms of, of um, uh, scripture that were used uh, extensively. I think uh, you know what. I'm, let me let me double check on the Syriac. That may be incorrect. I may have to correct that next week, I'll, and I'll make sure I have that for you. For some reason, my brain's waving a warning flag that that's not correct. So let me, let me double check on that one. But at least the old Latin was there. Uh, if you have this chart, I'm going to take a few moments and go through this real quick. All right. And again, I've, I've taught this one before here. And it's really about a, about a two-service thing. But we're going to go through this in about 20 minutes, hopefully 15 minutes. So we basically have two lines of Scripture that take place. Uh, from the Old Latin, let's keep those on the left-hand column, if you will, and if you have a pen and you want to write notes on that sheet of paper, you could write Old Latin up above where it says monetists. All right? Old Latin. So uh, the Old Latin was uh, the translation of all of these and the compilation of, of the whole entirety of Scripture in one in one volume in one language. And uh, the the apostles, the early churches, were extremely... Uh, they they were they were diligent. They were uh, I'm going to use the word they were fanatical. They were uh, they had great zeal in the area of purity of Scripture. Now the reason for that, and you say, well, how do you know that? Because even the apostle Paul, in several of his books in our Bible, deals with the fact. And in fact, in Galatians, he deals with it. He says, I, I, I'm amazed that you're so soon removed from a, a, a gospel, this gospel. He said, though we are an angel from heaven, preach another gospel than that which has been preached to you. He said, let him be accursed. Why was he dealing with that? Because already at 70 A.D., 56 or so A.D., whenever that was in, in that time period, already there were, there were factions that said, this is what we believe. Now, follow me on this. They said, this is what we believe, and we want to make sure that our Bible matches what we believe. And so they began to change things so that it would match their beliefs. Now, you've got two different lines of people. You've got people that say, this is what I believe, and I want my Bible to match it. And then over here on the, the monetist side of things, if you'll look at that where it says doctrinal purity, and you have the straight line coming down from the apostles... On the left side of your chart, you have the group of people who say, we want to make sure that our doctrine is pure. And since we get our doctrine from the Bible, then we must make sure that this book is pure. And their their emphasis was on keeping this in absolute purity and then gaining their doctrine from that. They said, we hold that the Bible is the Word of God and we want to believe what it says. The other group of folks are over here saying, this is what we believe, and we want to make our Bible match what we believe. Okay, I know that's an oversimplification to some degree of, of the two groups or the two mindsets, but that's really what took place. And so you have a group of folks. You can see here the Montanists, uh, the Novations around 200 A.D., the Donatists. Uh, they were not. These would be Baptistic people. They would believe the way we believe. They would hold to the things that we believe. They would believe the Bible is the sole authority, it's the only authority, it's the final authority, it's, it's the beginning and the end authority of everything that we practice and everything that we believe. We, we, don't, we don't come up with our beliefs and then try to find Scripture to, to fit it. We come to the Bible and say, teach me my beliefs. And that is the big difference between uh, most of the denominations. Uh, we are not Protestants. Baptists are not Protestants. Uh, We did not uh, protest and come out of the Roman Catholic Church because we were never part of it. Uh, We were always that that group of folks that were kind of shunned, that were kind of pushed to the wayside, that said, we just believe the Bible and what it says. And our our doctrine is going to be based on this. So they were fanatical. They Up until the time of Gutenberg, who started the printing press and came up with the first uh, viable printing press, Up until then, most copies of your Bible were uh, hand-scribed. In other words, they would oftentimes have a room of scribes. That was their their career. That's what they did (coughs) for a living. They were very meticulous. They were very careful in what they did. And if they didn't do a good job of it or they had a lot of errors, they were not a scribe for very long. They had to be very well educated. They had to have good penmanship. They had to have a very, very high criteria. And so normally what would happen is they would have somebody in the center of a room either reading and oftentimes giving letter by letter uh, the, the uh, things that were to be scribed in copies. And it was so much so that it was not unusual. And this, I want you to understand the meticulousness. And, and you know, when people say, well, how can it not have errors after all these years? Listen to the meticulousness of what these scribes would often do. It was not unusual <coughs> for, the, for them to take an entire day from sunup until sundown to write one page of Scripture. They were that careful. If a letter was written in such a way that you could not read it quite well or it was out of shape or out of form, they would throw the paper away, not, not cross through the letters, They would throw the paper away, get a clean sheet out, and start over. They wouldn't cross through things. When it came time, oftentimes, now this didn't happen with every scribe, but oftentimes, when they came to the name of Christ or God or Lord, they would stand up from their table, they would go wash themselves, they would put on a clean garment, grab a brand new quill that had never been used, and come back to the table and write the name of God. This is the reverence and the carefulness with which these scribes took to make copies of the original manuscripts. You say, well, where are the original manuscripts? We don't have them. They they have deteriorated. They have been lost over the years. There were secular historians that validated that there were legitimate copies up until about the 300s. And after that, they're gone. And probably for good reason. Because men are prone to worship the object rather than God. And if we had those, those objects today in our hands from the apostles, could you imagine having Paul's actual letter on the paper that he, he touched, that he handled? Uh, we would have a tendency to hold that in high regard, to worship that. Uh, I believe God does, does that type of thing for a reason. Why don't we know where Noah's Ark is or the Ark of the Covenant? Well, I think he, he in his wisdom, knows that we worship those kinds of things. And so he takes those out of the, out of the equation. So, these men are so meticulous in making copies of the Old Latin and making sure that we have absolute, absolute, without error, copies. There are numerous copies, well over 5,000. Uh, there's another four, three or 4,000 in another location that are not quite as accurate, but there are a little over 5,000 uh, of these uh, copies that were given uh, that are considered to be the, the uh, what we call the textus receptus or the received text. And out of those thousands of copies, they all agree with themselves uh, almost without error. And, and the errors that are there are like a spelling error perhaps of a word or a punctuation error, some small little things. Very, very small. But all of them are so meticulously done that you can lay them side by side and they read almost identical. And so the the importance of that. Now this is that line that's on the left-hand side here. You see the, the uh, catharis, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, the Lollards. Finally you get to the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists. Now you'll read some, if you go and try to research when did the Baptist movement start, <clears throat> you'll find out that a lot of people say it began with John Smythe in England, about fifteen, middle of the 1500s. That is not true. Even though we weren't called Baptists back then, uh, we still held to the things that these folks on the left-hand side of your paper hold to. And they have been in existence ever since the early apostles. Going to the right side of your page, the doctrinal error began to creep in noticeably. Uh, During the Apostle Paul's life, so before he even died, uh, there was already some attacks on Scripture. We've already mentioned that. Paul deals with it. He addresses it. He talks about false teachers and uh, those types of things. Uh, Around 180, between 185 and 254, you'll see there a man by the name of Origen. Uh, Origen was a secular philosopher. He was a very, very humanistic man. Uh, He denied the deity of Christ. He denied the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, if you read anything about him or what his beliefs were, he's a very wicked man, very ungodly man in his in his philosophies. He took the old Latin, the the, the thing that had been so carefully taken uh, care of. Uh, he took the old Latin, and uh, about about two hundred or so, two hundred and twenty, I think, 215, 220 A.D. He began to make corrections. He said, this isn't right because it doesn't match what my beliefs are. And so he begins to correct, if you will, in air quotations, he begins to correct the old Latin in his opinion. And he changes the Bible in over 35,000 different places. Now, I'm going to give to you a a, a simple law of logic here, okay? And now hang on to your seats because this one's a tough one, all right? Things that are different are not the same. Okay, you got that one? (laughs) Things that are different are not the same. You say, boy, it's amazing. He changed over 35,000 different places. And if he had changed one place, things that are different are not the same. If he had only made one change in the whole thing, We would have had a corrupt text to begin a line of where a lot of our versions come from today. He makes 35,000 plus, spends years correcting this. (coughs) It's such a horrible translation. Uh, Nobody buys it, it's not accepted, it's not something that is um, at all known. Uh, Shortly after this, we have the Council of Nicaea, about 325. The Roman Catholic, what we refer to as the Roman Catholic Church or the Holy Roman Empire in history, uh, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but anyway, uh, they they were in existence prior to this, but they they had a unifying thing here at the Council of Nicaea. This is where they begin to marry uh, the power of the church and the state together. And uh, the Pope literally becomes more powerful than the king. And they begin to... Um, the Pope becomes uh, the mouthpiece of God. They call it the vicar of Christ. And the things that the Pope says are, now they will we'll say it this way, are equal to what are in the Scriptures. Now, I will say this in the day that we live today, the things that the Pope says are excelled above the Scriptures. In other words, if there's a difference between what the Pope says and what the Scriptures say, you better listen to the Pope. And that's really kind of the mindset there. This this is the time period where a lot of this stuff began to kind of come into a uh, an organization, a very tight knit, uh, very strong movement. And so they began to to gain power and to gain money. They began to invent doctrines: the doctrine of purgatory, the doctrine uh, of indulgences, and uh, so many other things. Brother Harold did a great uh, study on this a couple about a year or so ago. Uh, on all these things that uh, are not found in Scripture. But they were implemented by the Pope over the years, and they were taken uh, as the same as Scripture. The problem is that there were a lot of people who were saying, well, we don't see that in Scripture. And so around uh, 420 or so, 430 uh, A.D., we have a man by the name of St. Jerome who comes on the scene. St. Jerome is commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to take the Old Latin and to correct it so that it more closely fits their doctrine. And he writes what now is known today as the Latin Vulgate. Uh, The Latin Vulgate is what is used and where the Catholic Bibles come from now. What Jerome does is he goes and he spends literally his life's savings to purchase everything he can from origin the life's work of origin he takes the stuff that origin did and he changes it an additional 5000 times plus makes another 5000 changes can i give you a, a lesson in logic now hang on to this one this is a this is a difficult one okay things that are different are not the same They are not the same. I know we're laughing at this, folks, but I'm telling you, we're living in a day where people are saying they're the same. Doesn't matter if you have this version or that version. They're the same. They are not the same. Don't get mad (laughs) at you. Somebody listening on the video is going to be like, I can't believe he would attack them like that. This is something that took place over 40,000 times in 40,000 places things were changed in that Scripture. They are not the same as the one I hold in my hand. Nor was the same care taken to make sure that it was pure from the original writings. They changed them according to their beliefs. And so we have this other line of doctrinal error that takes place. In the 1200s, the church is so emphatic because of all the changes that they've made in Scripture. The church is so emphatic. When I say the church in this case, I'm talking here about the Roman Catholic Church. <coughs> they are so emphatic about the changes that they made, and people starting to raise an eyebrow about, well, I didn't see that in the Bible I had when I was a kid or whatever. They, they literally made it illegal for the common man to have a Bible in their possession. Only the priests, only the the higher-ups in the Roman Catholic Church could have a Bible. And it had to be in Latin. They had to use the Latin Vulgate, the one that Jerome came up with, uh, that has been changed in so many areas. And they would preach that. They would literally chain their Bibles to the pulpits and put padlocks on them so that the common man could not come up and see them. You have some men that are championing the cause of the common man. People like William Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, translates the scripture. His, his dying breath, he was burned at the stake for translating scripture into the common language. The king told him to stop, and he said, I'm not going to stop until every common man knows more scripture than you. And they burned him at the stake for it because they didn't want this corruption of scripture to be known at the time. This happens for over 300 years. It throws the world into what we call the Dark Ages. Some of the worst things, the Inquisition's happening during this time. Men that are standing strong for pure doctrine. You have the Protestant movement happening here. You have Martin Luther coming out and reading in the Scriptures uh, that the just shall live by faith. That went against everything that the, the church then was teaching. He came across those words and he couldn't get away from them. The just shall live by faith. And then you have Gutenberg coming on the scene. Well, what a miracle that was. Wasn't that wonderful? The 1500s. He he invents the printing press. His whole purpose, his whole desire in making the printing press was not just so he could become wealthy printing books. There was only one book he was interested in printing, and that was the Bible. Gutenberg wanted every man, every common man, to have a copy of Scripture in his hand. You know one of the things I love about our Baptist faith? We encourage people to take this book and read it and see for themselves what does God say and if I'm, if I'm wrong as a pastor, I hope somebody tells me, because I want to be right. We encourage that. We tell our folks, listen, if it's in there and, and, and I teach something different, come tell me about it. It's hard to have doctrinal error when every person sitting there has the same book that came from God telling us what we're supposed to believe. We can read it for ourselves. You don't have to have a man get up and tell you and trust him and hope that he's telling you right and hope that he's not making a mistake or, or worse yet, lying to you. You have God's Word. That's why I love it. I, I think it's a wonderful thing that we do this. And, again, we believe that we use the King James Version of Scripture. We're going to get there in just Well, probably not today. We'll probably have to get there next week. So the Reformation begins. We have some people pull out of the Catholic Church. They're called Protestants. Again, Baptists are not. We're, we are grouped in that uh, for some of the census things and things that the government keeps track of as far as numbers. They, they group the Baptists in, with, and they call it Protestants. Uh, we are not Protestants. We were not part of the Catholic Church. We didn't come out of the Catholic Church. Uh, we, we were, we were uh, that line of folks, that remnant of folks, who from the time of the apostles said, we just simply believe what the Bible says. And we've held to that over all these years. <clears throat> now, it is ten minutes till... Next week, we're going to deal with, uh, now that there's a a printing press in place, there are several great translations of Scripture from the Old Latin. Not not from the Latin Vulgate, but from the Old Latin into English. Uh, William Tyndale is a great one in this area. Uh, And even though the uh, translators were told to use a different Scripture as their primary focus... It ended up over the course of the translation work of the King James translators that they uh, got uh, most of William Tyndale's work and began to use a lot of that. If you have uh, that handout, I think I gave it to you. Uh, This is an amazing thing, the program for translation, uh, how they set it up, Uh, some insight into the translators themselves, just a couple of the translators, and then on the back, the rules to be followed by these translators. Can I say this? There has never been in the history of mankind ever a translating effort done as carefully and as meticulously as the translation of the King James Bible. You say, why do we hold to the King James Bible? It's Old English. It is, but we believe it to be without error. Taken from the very carefully scribed manuscripts that were that were dictated specifically word by word and letter by letter from the original writings. That's why one of the reasons why we hold to this book being the inerrant, preserved, inspired word of God. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. There is no discounting the fact that God has promised in Scripture, we're going to look at that next week. God has promises in Scripture that He would preserve His Word without error to every generation. That means in every generation there has always been a, an inerrant, preserved, pure Word of God. Always. You say, how do you know that yours is it? You have to come back next week to find out why. Okay? I thought we'd be done today, but there's a lot of material here uh, because I don't want you to think that we just hold this because we're just hard-nosed and we just think that's the only book there is. There are reasons why we believe this to be not only the inspired, but the preserved, without error, Word of God. And uh, people ask me sometimes, "What, what, what version should I get? King James Version. Why? Because things that are different are not the same. They just aren't. There's going to be some difference. And they're going to change your doctrine. And we want to make sure that our doctrine is pure. We want to make sure it's right. And so it's important that we have confidence that we have a pure word in order to get our doctrine from it. All right, let's stand. We'll be dismissed. And uh, we'll be back next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it. And Lord, use it in our lives. We, we believe not that this book contains Your thoughts or the, the overview of what You would have for us. Lord, we believe these words to be breathed out by you, to be given to us, word for word, letter for letter. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold to it, to know it well, to anchor our hearts and our souls around the doctrine that this thing teaches, that we would understand and know truth, not because of what some man's opinion is, but because of what you have given to us to know truth. And so help us as we go to the next service. May you encourage us and bless us with the preaching of your word.